Thank you, Kiana, for reading to us the Word of God this morning. Well, good morning. Hey, Name Tag Sunday is a great Sunday, and it's a great time to ask, how do you identify yourself? You could say, well, with my name tag today. (laughs) But um, how do you identify yourself in conversation? Do you identify by your achievements, by your age, by your attraction, by your beliefs, by your business, by your collections, by your clubs, by your cars, by your conspiracies? Do you identify by your diet, by your disability, or by your dream? Do you identify by your ethnicity, by your experiences, or your education? Do you identify by your family, your friends, your future, your favorite sayings, your fashion, or how much fiber you have taken in? As you get older, that'll become more relevant. (laughs) Do you identify by games, by grandchildren, by gender, by generation? Do you identify by your house, your hobbies, or your hometown? Do you identify by your in-laws or your indigestion? Those two often go together. Do you identify by your job? Do you identify by movies, money, or music? Do you identify by political views, peer group, products, the past, personality profile, pets, your partner? Do you identify by religion or relatives? Do you identify by your celebrities, your scars, your personal smell. (laughs) Do you identify by your workout or your wounds? Do you identify by your trips, your toys, your tattoos, your trucks, or your teams? You still identify with your team, even when your team is in field goal range and they throw an interception. (laughs) Do you still identify with them then? So sometimes we want to break free of being identified with certain relationships and expectations. Maybe I'll just take a moment here and greet our online audience. Uh, We love our online church family, and I just want to say... We're going to have an opportunity because we're having lunch after church and we had a shaking hands moment. We have the opportunity to chat here, but we'd love for you to be able to chat with each other online. And so I'll give you a question that you can ask online. When, you, when you're in a conversation and people say, tell me about yourself, what are some of the things that are unique about you that you often bring up in conversation? Anyhow, something to think about. So what are the things the unique things about yourself that you often bring up in conversation um, that you include in your response when someone asks you to identify yourself. I've been reading um, New York pastor Tim Keller's book. Um, uh, Last week I was reading this, and he, he 
mentions three different views on identity. He says, in ancient cultures and some traditional cultures today, it's taught that strong individual feelings should be um, suppressed in order to do one's duty and fulfill one's role within the family or the tribe or the country. So your self-worth uh, doesn't come from being who I am or, or, or discovering yourself. Your self-worth comes from the honor bestowed upon you by the community as you do your duty. So Queen Elizabeth is an incredible example of this. She embraced that her life was not mainly about expressing herself as an individual and doing what she wanted. It was about doing her duty and fulfilling her role. And I will say that I do admire Queen Elizabeth and have always had great respect for her life of service. And I'm uh, very hopeful after reading many of the things that she said and even listening to some of her Christmas broadcasts that she is a follower follower of Jesus. Again, I don't know that for certain and I can't uh, rubber stamp anyone into heaven, but I'm inclined to believe that the Queen today is in the presence of King Jesus and that she's not bearing the weight of the British Empire anymore, but that she's free just to be Elizabeth before her Savior. But she is an example of that expectation in a traditional society or a traditional culture. So strong in this, in this, in this setting, strong feelings and desires are suppressed in order to do one's duty and fulfill one's role. So duty and roles are king. Now, Christianity comes along and puts much more value on the feelings and desires of the individual and doesn't give the family and society so much absolute control over individuals. So Christianity regards emotions and passions as something not to be ignored or simply suppressed, but instead to be examined. Why am I feeling what I'm feeling? What, what about this desire that I have? And like all worldviews, it gives a moral framework for which desires should be affirmed and which ones should be resisted. And it tells us that our highest love and our allegiance should be directed towards God. So, in Christianity, you have strong feelings and desires. They're inspected, and then they're directed towards God. So, in, in Christianity, God is king. And then the third area that Tim Keller was talking about in his book was modern secularism. So this says we must be ourselves regardless of social expectations. So in this context, you're a hero if you stand up and are true to yourself against society's opposition. So strong feelings and desires must be expressed and lived out. Your strong feelings and desires are who you are. So self is king and my desires our king. So this modern secular narrative, um, which sort of borrows from Christianity the, the worth of the individual, because Christianity, more than any other belief system, has elevated the worth of the individual. But then it goes farther than that. It goes, it goes beyond just understanding and directing your passions to putting them on the throne, to making them king. So self becomes king or queen. It's about me. It's about what I desire. Follow your heart. You do you. Don't say no to any of your deepest desires because that is what you are. 
So this tendency to define ourselves without God is not a modern invention, though. I mean, modern man has grabbed onto it, but it's not a modern invention. It's an ancient tendency buried deep within ourselves. Let me read to you from Genesis 3, and uh, this is Eve speaking to the serpent. So Eve said, God did, not say, God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's some of the underlying undertones of this message. Don't trust and obey God. He's lying to you. He's holding out on you. He's limiting you from being all you can be, in this context, from being like him. So why obey God when you can be like God? Or why obey God when you can be God? Why identify yourself in relationship to God when you can identify yourself independently from God? And it says that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So it looks good. I desire it. And because desires are king, because self is king, then I must have it. Romans one twenty five talks about this is a symptom for all of humanity. This, it says they, and that's talking about all of humanity. They ex- Romans one twenty five. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. So here's a bit of uh, foreshadowing of what I'm going to talk about. The result of humanity's attempt to live life undefined by God meant worshiping lesser things. It didn't mean you stop worshiping. It just means you worship lesser things. And it didn't mean you stop serving. It just means you serve lesser things. And it didn't mean you stop identifying. It just means you identify with the lesser things. And this is what modern people and ancient man have in common. We desire to live our lives on our own terms and not God's term. In short, we're all, we all desire to form our identity independent of God. So there's some problems with that. And Tim Keller, as I was reading his book, he, I'm borrowing quite a bit from what he said because I thought, man, that guy's smart. So some of the problems with pursuing identity independent of God. Well, the first one is it assumes that we know what we want. Our deepest desires often contradict each other. I mean, you might say, man, I want this stellar career. And I also want that relationship with that particular person. But this means moving over here, and they're moving over there. And what if somebody else gets that other person? And so you feel conflicted. Conflicted. Our desires and feelings also change. Do you know who you are when you're six? Do you know who you are when you're 16? How about 26? 36, 46, 56? If you're getting to my age and older, you're starting to catch on that you're still discovering, still discovering. So what your feelings are, who you think you are, you're discovering more and more as you go. And so your identity is, it, well, if it's just based on what your feelings are and what your, what your desires are, it's going to give you a roller coaster ride. But it won't be giving you a stabilizing foundational identity. 
When your identity is based on what my desires are or what my feelings are, it will it'll give you a good wrestle, but it won't give you a good rest. It's just not that stable. It's unstable. It's contradictory, and it's easily changeable. The second thing is that if you want to um, say that myself is king, my desires are king, and I'm going to define myself on my own without God, well, guess what? We sometimes do that because we're trying to throw off the shackles or what we perceive to be shackles of God's moral law or what God wants us to do. So if God can't say who I am, then God can't say what I do. Then I'm going to say who I am and by association what I do. And so we think we're, we've, we've thrown off the shackles of moral restraint and now it's just up to us. But you know what? Nobody ever... Um, really um, expresses who they truly are without moral input. We need moral input from outside of ourselves to shape our identity. We don't just get it from within. You see, through life we receive moral beliefs that we use to sift through our various feelings and impulses. And some we express and some we suppress. So imagine that you're a Viking in the whatever era when they were the most dominant. And uh, you have two strong desires. One strong desire is to bash heads. And in that culture, that is highly encouraged. Because if you bash heads, we conquer more and we advance and we do well as the Vikings. And your other desire is to sing and dance in tight, shiny pants. In that culture, you will suppress that desire. Now, just imagine if that Viking had been born somewhere else, or maybe even a different time. Let's just put him being born in New York in, right now. Just a stone's throw away from Broadway. Well, one desire that he's going to express is singing and dancing in tight, shiny pants because it's encouraged. But it's not morally okay, probably in New York, his friend group and his peer group will tell him to go bash heads of your enemies. So he'll suppress that. So we might think, I'm just living out who I am. No, you actually have a moral grid. You might not be aware of it, but you've picked up all these clues along the way that this is okay and that's not okay. And so this desire that I am encountering, I'm pushing down, and this one I'm expressing because the community around me said it's okay. If you grew up in a different community around you, there'd be different things that would get expressed and different things that are suppressed. But this idea that I'm just doing this on my own, completely, utterly me, it's impossible. We, we do have outside moral standards. You might have said, well, I grew up in this certain environment where these were sort of the what was right and wrong, and I hated that restriction, so I threw off those shackles, and I joined. I, I, I left that behind. But you know what happened is you just basically left one tribe for another tribe. You're always going to be picking up those clues on what's acceptable, what should be expressed, and what should be suppressed. And so... It's impossible to get away from some sort of moral code or moral grid because we get that from outside of ourselves. Here's another problem with just identifying ourselves by our desires and our feelings independent of God. We can't give ourselves worth. We can't give ourselves 
worth. I mean, we can do some mental games. You can say, I don't care that everyone thinks I'm a monster. I love myself, and that is all that matters. But I want to tell you, it's not terribly convincing. It's not terribly convincing. We need someone from the outside to say that we are of great worth. And actually, the greater worth that they have in our eyes, the more convincing it is. The more it shapes our identity. If you say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do this on my own, I'm going I'm to uh, convince myself that I'm truly worthy. And the whole world doesn't matter what they say. In fact, that's one of the biggest mantras uh, that is said in our culture today. You have to be who you are and don't care about what anyone says. Right? It, you see it in movies. There'll be a scene. It's usually some mentor or some wise friend or comes alongside the hero and says, you just got to be who you are and don't care about what anyone else says. And then they usually nod or they might say, thanks, I needed that. And it's totally contradictory. The scene is complete, completely contradictory. Because if it, was, if it wasn't contradictory, the scene would go like this. You just be yourself. Don't care what anyone says. And then the person would say, that's exactly what I'm going to do. In fact, the first person I'll tell that I don't care about what they say is you. I don't care what you just said. At all. I am going to do me. Do what I want. I don't care about you and what you say. Like, what kind of movie scene would that be? But it would actually show the truth of that statement, that the statement's internally contradictory. We need input from outside of ourselves. Ten years ago, I was in a training to become a foster parent with my wife, and um, there's a bunch of foster parents, and one of the ladies in there, she had been trained as a young girl to be a ballerina, and she did so well and performed at such a high level that her parents sent her off to Europe to train under the masters. And um, anyhow, years later, she's training to be a foster parent like we are. And one, there's a more experienced foster parent who's trying to tell us how some of the things they, um, how they help foster kids. So we're listening for some tips. And this more experienced foster parent says this. She says, I never tell my foster kids that I'm proud of them. And then we all sort of pause for, oh, okay, that's something to consider. She says, instead, I tell them, aren't you proud of yourself? Because I, I want them to develop independent self-esteem. So we're all processing this and thinking, and the young lady who's the ballerina, she suddenly steps into the conversation. She said, that's exactly what my parents said to me when I was growing up. They always said, aren't you proud of yourself? And she says, and today, I would give anything for them to just once say that they are proud of me. Could it be that our identity was meant to be formed in a relationship? Could it be that we're hardwired for this? That we're not just me against the world and it doesn't matter what anyone else says or, 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 or says to us. We actually do that, need that outside input to be formed into who we are. Tim Keller says this. He says, the question of identity is not who am I, but whose am I? Since identity always comes 
from the acclaim and accreditation of someone outside us, who or whatever that source is, holds the title to our heart. We belong to them, and we will get their approval only if we, only if we perform. And so our self-worth will go up and down depending on how we are doing. We will be slaves. Only if God names us and we serve him will we be free from enslavement because he grants us love on the basis of Jesus' performance, not ours. If he names us, if we are his, we can finally rest in our identity as his child. Here is where Christianity is so liberating. So many different things about identity from the Christian perspective. And I'm talking about this just to give a great bit introduction to our Ephesians series. Ephesians is all about identity. You'll see it again and again as we go through the book. But Ephesians emphasize that our foundational identity is meant to be formed in relationship with our Creator God. Our foundational identity. I'm, you know, there's lots of other things that might form your identity, your sports teams and your, your, who you're married to and, and, you know, your education and your job. Those are all important. But your foundational identity, and I say foundational identity because it's so important because some of those other things can be taken. And when they're taken, it can rock your life if there's no foundation under it. If your life is your job and you lose your job, that is devastating. I mean, it's hard enough. But if your identity is totally in that one thing, and it gets taken. So Christianity is so liberating. First, we learn in the Bible that we're made in the image of God. Our value comes from simply being human and being in relationship with God. So many of these statements in our modern world, like the Gettysburg Address or all these different statements when nations were formed in the West, have this in there. We see that men and all mankind, they're equal. They have, a, they have a worth, they have a dignity that's been in, 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 instilled in them through their creator. That's where it comes from. You're made in the image of God. You matter because you're made in the image of God. Also, God has revealed his moral expectations for us through his written word. If you didn't get this, weekly's memo, this weekly memo of how are the moral expectations in our culture have changed, and you've fallen behind, don't sweat it. It's okay. You've got a framework for how to live in this world. He's given us his word. And it teaches us who God is and what he does and who we are as a result and what we do. We'll, we'll see all that in Ephesians. Christianity is liberating because we have the greatest someone speaking of our worth. If you need someone to speak of your worth, well, why not go to the greatest one? That's God. Christianity is liberating because we have an identity that's not achieved but received. It's not achieved. It's, it's received because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we have done. So even though lesser identity items in our life can be lost or threatened, our foundational identity in God cannot be lost. 
Now, the writer of Ephesians is Paul, and he went through an identity transformation. At one point, he hated the name of Jesus, tried to stamp it out. Everyone who followed Jesus, he wanted them dead, arrested, imprisoned. And this is how he talks about his before and after. He says, though I could have had confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, this is identity he's talking about, if others have reasons for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. This is Philippians 3, 4, 7 to 9. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. So he's a really good Jew. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. There's his ethnicity. A member of the tribe of Benjamin. A real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees, exalted uh, you know, religious leaders, who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. As for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. He's talking about his identity that he once had. He was an all-star. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. And he goes on in verse 10 to say, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. So what's wrong with pursuing self-identity without God? Well, it doesn't work. It's not what we're made for. It's a symptom of our rebellion against God, and it leads to slavery. When we pursue identity without God, someone else will own us. We think we're standing on our own two feet. We think that we're independent but the reality is that somebody else will own the key to your heart. And if you perform, it'll go well. And if you fail to perform, it won't. And so there's a constant pressure in your life. If your identity is made up of things that aren't the foundational bedrock of relationship with God, they'll all be shakable. They'll all be threatenable. I mean, once you, once you take on that, that belief that I must have these things, they don't go from great, nice things to add to your life. They become necessities that you can't lose. It's a lot of pressure. And so I want, one of my goals is I want to help you pursue freedom and rest through your new identity in Christ throughout this series. So I want to just talk really quickly about three things. I just in pursuing those things. To do that, you need to pursue what's said in heaven rather than what's said on earth. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What does that mean? Well, blessed can mean a couple things. It can mean happy. But in this context, it means spoken well of. God has spoken well of you. In fact, he's spoken well of you with every spiritual blessing. And it's interesting, as you read the spiritual blessings that we're going to read in a bit here, they're talking about relationship with Jesus Christ. All of them are talking about relationship. 
What are the spiritual blessings? They're all found in relationship with Christ. So praise be to the God of the Father, Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? Well, there's a different perspective from heaven than there is from earth. It's top down, not just stuck in the forest and you can't find your way out. So in the heavenly realms means that God sees and declares the details of our true identity that we were made for in, the, in, the, in, in eternity past and that we uh, were designed for in the future. What's heaven's perspective regarding you? What does God and all of heaven see when they look, when they look at you? What do they know about you, about your past and your present and your future? When God blessed you, when he spoke well of you in heaven, what did he say? What did he say? In Ephesians chapter 1, chapter one we just, let me just read you a few verses. Again, praise be to the Father, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. You were chosen before the creation of the world. Now, it didn't say people get, I'll read you one other word and I'll jump back to it. He chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. Does that mean, oh, I have to perform, I have to rise up to the standard? No, it's like his choosing us to be holy and blameless was through Jesus. Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father, his sacrificial death on the cross, made it possible for you to stand before God completely righteous, clothed in Jesus' track record, holy and blameless. He chose you for that. That's a huge blessing. He chose you for that. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Now, some people see chose and predestined and say, well, it seems like God just forced us. No, no, no. It's not, that's not necessarily, you know, there's arguments back and forth by theologians in their towers about these things. But listen, Predestined just means he made a path for you. He made a way for you to be adopted to sonship. What does that mean? Adopted to sonship means that you are his child with every legal right that that child could possess. This is why this, this verse is, is transformational for men and women. You say, well, adopted to sonship, that doesn't sound great for women. But it actually is talking about in the, in the days it was written, adopted to sonship was only allowable to men, right? So you could have a rich Roman ruler, and he would had no children, and so he would adopt some adult male who showed great promise, and he'd say, you're my heir. When I die, all my wealth will go to you. This verse is saying, no, it's for all of us. With Christ, he makes us his child, and we have every right. We have every right, and we have his inheritance to look forward to. We have everything that you would receive as being a legal child, it's yours. So he, he made a path for us to be his child with full legal standing. And we stand to inherit everything from him. So he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption. Redemption 
basically has the idea behind it that here's a slave on the slave trading block, and someone comes and bids on them, wins the bid, and then sets them free. It's an incredible picture of our human condition. Slaves that are set free. So when you see the, the word redemption, think freedom. So we have freedom through his blood. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness means God's not counting your sins against him or against others, against you anymore. He's not counting your sins against you. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So, pursue what's said in heaven rather than what's said on earth. This is what's said about you. So on earth people say, well, this is how I see you, and there's all sorts of different things. And we sometimes scratch and claw to try to get a little ounce of affirmation in some of our contexts. Listen, Stop striving to get that. And marinate in this. Marinate in what is said in heaven about you than rather than what is said on earth. I love that in this passage, there's so many references about how we didn't have to pry this out of God's fingers. Phrases like, in love, in him, in accordance with his pleasure and will. He freely gives us his grace. He lavishes his grace on us. He made known to us his will according to his good pleasure. Do you get the idea that God loves to do this? He desires to do this. He, his pleasure is to make you his own. It's incredible. There's no love like the love of God. There's no blessing like the blessing of God. We, might, we go looking for love. We go looking for blessing in other places, but there's a treasure trove here in God. So pursue what is said in heaven more than what is said on earth. But the second thing is pursue what enhances God's glory before your own glory. You might have noticed in this passage that it keeps saying to the, to the praise of his glorious grace or to the praise of his glory. There's three different times in chapter 1 it says that phrase. So why is God doing this? Why is that God doing this? Your new identity. Your new identity. God is redeeming. He's freeing your old identity. He's giving you a new identity. Your new identity leads to praise to God. Your new identity in Christ leads to freedom for you, but it leads to praise to God. In praise of his glorious grace, grace changed Paul from someone who hated the name of Jesus to someone who couldn't stop talking about him, couldn't stop praising him. This whole passage we're reading here, some scholars have said it's one sentence. Read it in one breath. It's almost like Paul is tumbling over his words just to try to get it out how great it is that God has made us his own. You know, some people say, well, what, you know, well, God wants praise for himself. It just seems like he's insecure. Listen, if a mother told a child, it's good you have a mom. I love you. 
I'm there for you. I'll be there for you your whole life. What a selfish woman. Seriously. Telling it. Oh, you know, if a, ch- a mother tells a child, you know, I know you want to run away with the circus, but it would be better if you stayed here with me. Oh, my goodness, how selfish is she? It's because moms are pretty awesome. And that child will do best with mom raising the child rather than the circus master. And so why is God so pressing about his glory? Well, there's lots to it. I don't have time to unpack it all, but it is for our good that we pursue his glory before our own. Because that's where we will be truly satisfied. We won't be satisfied in all the circus masters of the world. We'll be satisfied in the one who we were made for. So as we find our, as we, and, and you know this, you know this. If you've had God do a work in your life and you're in the middle of a worship service and there's lines up there that just remind you of what God's done for you and, you, and tears or emotions or just real depth of, of, of sincere feeling come to you, you know, I was made for this. I was made to glorify God. I was made to find my, get lost in the greatness of who God is. So pursue what enhances God's glory before our own glory. And then here's the last one. Pursue how I am redeemed by Christ. Pursue how I'm redeemed by Christ. We're going to do that through this, through this series. We're going to keep looking back. How did he make us free? What did he do? What is he, what, what, who is God? What did he do? And what has that made us? Who are we because of that? And now what do we do? There's a progression there, and we need to pursue that to find out how has God made me free in Christ? How has he given me an identity that's foundational and unshakable and cannot be taken away? You can lose your ability. You can lose your position. You can lose your track record. You can lose your honor. You can lose your relationships. Who are you then if those are your identity? But you cannot lose your relationship, you cannot lose who you are in Christ, who he's made you to be. It's an enduring identity that he thought up before the foundation of the world and will continue way longer into eternity. So you might have an identity right now that's got a duration of shelf life of I don't know how long. But your eternal identity, the identity that lasts is our identity in him. You know, the queen's passing. I'll just invite the worship team to come back at this moment. The queen's passing um, reminded me of my two passports. I have two passports, a British one and a Canadian one. And I got a British one because my dad was British and moved over as an immigrant and so I could get one too. So my British passport tells me that I am a British citizen. I read it, just looked at it the other day, just look at it. I'm a British citizen. Now, it's not like I'm you know, a spy or something, or an international man of mystery. I just have two passports. But you know what? When I read that, I sort of laughed because I realized I do not think of myself as a British citizen. I've visited England twice, but I've lived my whole life in Canada. So I think of myself as a Canadian citizen way more than I think of myself as a British citizen. In fact, I sort of even, I, legal it's true, but 
I identify as a Canadian. That's how I see myself. And then I thought, as I was looking at these two passports, and this is because of the Queen's passing that I got thinking about this. I thought of, how much more do I think of myself as Canadian over British? And then how much more do I think of myself as God's child over being Canadian? I mean, the leap from the guy who's been to England twice to live his whole life in Canada is huge. But the leap from the guy who's lived his whole life in Canada, this life, this temporary, soon-to-be-over breath of a life, and eternity with God is an even greater contrast. So who am I? Well, I'll tell you, I am Canadian. But that doesn't compare to the fact that I am a child of God. I am a child of God, and that is my identity. So I want you to stand with me. I'm going to just get you to do a bit of an exercise with me as we end. I'm going to read you. Maybe we've got that slide. Do we have a slide for this at the very end? There we go. So I want you to say this to each other. I was in a, I was in a, a black church in England. This is my, one of my England trips. I was in an all-black church, and I noticed that they don't sing facing forward. They sing facing each other and moving around lots. And um, so I thought, this is what we'll do right now. I want you to say this to each other. I want you just to finish the sermon for me. I want you to preach this to each other. Okay? So look at people. Just look at them right now. Just look around. Look around. Come on. You're, you, can you, you can do it. You can do it. Oh, you can do it. Maybe. Maybe. Some of you can't. Okay. All right. We're finding out. And I want you to say, I want you to say this to each other. If you can't look sideways, say it to the worship team. Okay? Let's say it together. Let's say it together. You are chosen by God. You are holy and blameless in God's sight. You are God's child. You are redeemed by Jesus' blood. You are forgiven. You are included in God's family. Your inheritance is guaranteed for the praise of his glory. Hey, let's worship. That the highest king would welcome I was lost, but he brought me in all his love for me. All his love.